0: To Life Church Podcast
1: with Pastor David Sinclair. I get to meet with all of you throughout the week, and you tell me just wonderful stories of what God is doing in your lives. And I'm like, could you just tell that on Sunday morning? Because that's one of the things that the Bible says that we overcome the enemy by the blood of the Lamb and the power of our testimony, the word of our testimony. So we want you to use this time to share those good things that God is doing in your life, answered prayers. Um, but for today, Christina's coming with a teaching. And uh, so, enjoy.
0: Good morning, everybody. Uh, Today, I want to introduce you to someone named Catherine Barnwell. Uh, Catherine Barnwell was born in London in 1938. And in 1960, she began to study at the Summer Institute for Linguistics, which is a Bible translation organization. Um, She uh, excelled there and she became a teacher at SIL uh, shortly after she graduated and earned her, and then she went on to earn her PhD in linguistics. In her teaching, she focused on semantics, which is the theory of meaning, and she especially developed ways for lay translators, translators who don't have a higher education, to understand semantics so that nationals could help translate the the Bible into their own language. And in doing so, it seems that she revolutionized uh, Bible translation. She moved to Nigeria in 1964 and headed up a translating team there. But very soon after that, Westerners almost entirely were kicked out of the country. She was allowed to stay, uh, which shows her influence even at an early age. Um, But that meant she had to train, again, train nationals to um, to help her translate the Bible. So she wrote her own curriculum to do that. And this curriculum was published in 1975. It's a book called Bible Translation, an Introductory Course in Translation Principles. This book is currently in its fourth edition and is still considered the gold standard in translating. It itself has been translated into a dozen languages and is given digitally to pretty much every translator associated with mainstream Bible translation organizations. By 1980, she was in charge of every translating project uh, run by SIL in Africa. And by 1984, her book and methods began to see widespread use outside of Africa, around the globe. Uh, Larry Jones, who's the head of a major uh, Bible translation organization called The Seed Company, estimates that in Asia, Africa, and Latin America, the translators who have been trained on her methods number in the thousands. In addition to her book, Barnwell has developed a new way to train translators who speak different languages to train them at the same time. It's called the cluster model. Um, And this model has been used to train translators for the Jesus film, which has resulted in three times the number of Jesus films being produced every year since she started this cluster model training. Translators across, Bible translators across all of the major translation organizations believe that hundreds of millions of new global Christians are taught with Bibles that wouldn't exist without her. Dozens of translators from all the major organizations agree that in the last 150 to 200 years, there has been no one who has had a greater impact on Bible translation than Catherine Barnwell. And here's the crazy thing. She doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. That's how under the radar she is. But one African language consultant said that she is the mother of Bible translation in Africa and in many other places as well. And I think someone's going to read the scripture tently.
2: Our scripture today comes from Matthew chapter 28, verses 12 through 20. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them.
1: You know, this past year, I had the great privilege of being asked to coach Jada's middle school basketball team at Sioux Falls Lutheran, and um, yeah, I had, obviously, I've loved basketball for a long time, but I haven't really made a good run at coaching, and so this was my first real experience with coaching basketball, girls, middle school girls basketball, so I had a couple of fifth graders, a good group of sixth graders, a couple of seventh graders, and a couple of eighth graders, so pretty wide age gap, um, age span there that I was coaching, and we had one girl who uh, was one of the older girls, and she has played a lot of club ball, really, really experienced, has loved basketball for a long time, and she's really, really good. And I heard about her as I was taking the coaching up. They're like, oh, you've got Josie, you're gonna be fine. She's a great, she's a great player, just a standout player. And I learned as a coach, there's um, both a real blessing in coaching a standout player and some real challenges with it. And the blessing is, you've got a standout player. They can do a lot of things for your team. They 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 get you places that you you know you you couldn't go otherwise, right? They they do things for your team that you just you just can't count on from other players. But the challenge with it is a lot of the other players start watching this great standout player in the middle of the game. You know, sometimes I had to call a timeout and say, look, Josie's good, yes, but she can't beat the other team by herself. As a matter of fact, the other team would quickly figure out, hey, that's their player, and start double teaming her and stuff. like. I'm like, everybody has to be locked in. Everybody has to be focused. This is going to take the whole team to win this game. Nope, we can't just be watching Josie, right? And I feel like Christianity is like that as well. You know, over the centuries, Christianity developed more and more structure to help keep the teaching about Jesus in line with what the apostles had taught. And good leadership was needed in the church. In the midst of that structure came professions where people studied the Bible full time. Um, I think that's a really good thing as well. I was trained at seminary. I learned a ton of things. But one of the problems with sort of the professionalizing of Christianity is that it started to teach other people that they could just sit on the sidelines and watch. They could just be spectators while these other people were playing in the game. This has become an epidemic in American churches. We have lots and lots of Christians sitting on the sidelines while a few staff persons on church are doing the work of making disciples. And sadly, we've come to accept this as normal, accepting the idea that there are professional Christians, and then there's all the rest. Kind of over here doing not much of anything. And to keep with my coaching analogy, you know, the Bible tells us that church leadership is certainly important, But that leadership actually serves to equip, to coach the rest of the the congregation, the rest of the body of Christ for ministry. Listen how Paul puts it in Ephesians 4. He says this, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. See that? They're equipping them for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So, Think of your church leadership like coaches, only they can sub themselves into the game too, and they can play right alongside you, right? In fact, they should be playing right alongside you, but, but they're training you mostly, equipping you because you're playing the game every single day, right? That's what Sunday morning is, right? It's like, it's like a huddle. It's like we gather together, we train, we equip, we, we encourage one another, for the work that we're going to do, for playing the game throughout the week in our various circles of influence. And I've often wondered if the church would be better off with no paid leadership at all. As a matter of fact, I had a couple of friends who tried this experiment. It didn't go very well, by the way. But they were two pastors, and they just decided we're going to fire ourselves, and we're going to take other jobs, and we're going to give every church member a staff badge, and that way, everybody gets this point of the priesthood of all believers. We're all on staff of the church. This is all of our tasks to make disciples. Didn't go super well. And I don't think it's, it's necessarily an awesome idea because there's lots of things that need to be done inside the church. But the principle is there, right? The principle is right on the money. The Bible's clear that every member of the church is needed and vital for the task at hand. It's a huge task, a monumental task. It's the ta- task of making disciples. Of the whole world, right? Like Christina was talking about, like John prayed about even this morning. According to the Joshua Project, there's a website that tracks unreached people groups. There are currently 17,446 people groups in the world for a total population of 7.93 billion. Of those 17,446 people groups, 7,388 groups are unreached. Meaning, there's 3.36 billion people in the world that are living in people groups where they're very, very likely going to be born, live, and die without ever hearing the name of Jesus. That's crazy, isn't it? That's why Catherine puts so much work into Bible translations. And of course, there's plenty of work to do on the local level, too. There are a number of people claiming, uh, the number of people claiming no religious affiliation, you know, is on the rise, especially in urban areas, and Sioux Falls is no different. According to one study, under half the residents of Sioux Falls claim any religious affiliation, and we know that um, the religious affiliations um, of other groups, other religions, is growing in Sioux Falls as well, just by people immigrating to this city. So the big idea here is that everyone in the church is needed for this task of making disciples. There's no appendix in the body of Christ. Every Christian has to be engaged. Every Christian has to be in the game. There's no time and no reason for anyone to sit on the sidelines as a spectator. David Platt said, the church is not an audience of spectators. It is a fellowship of disciple makers. Not an audience of spectators, but a fellowship of disciple makers. And that's the big idea of today's text. That's what we're going for today. Um, Today, we're wrapping up our our." Easter season series. The, the, the series has been called Risen Vision. And we've been looking at the words of Jesus to his disciples, to his followers, after he rose from the dead. And what he did is he didn't just give them instructions, but he gave them vision for their lives, a very different kind of life than what they had had before. And of course, right now, Life Church, as you heard Nathan talk about, we're also looking at this idea of vision of the next four to five years. What is the Lord having us to do? And no doubt, the words of these t- this text here is going to continue to be at the center of everything we do. I mean, this passage, Matthew 28, 19, is literally just a rewording of our vision statement, or our vision statement's a rewording of this. Our mission statement actually says, we glorify Jesus Christ by making disciples in our neighborhood and beyond. Hear that? It's very, very similar to the Great Commission. And let me just quickly remind you, the difference between a mission statement which is what I just read there, and a vision statement is a mission statement it's kind of the big overarching thing that um, is what the organization always does, and it never, ever changes, right? So our mission statement is the same mission statement that Jesus gave us 2,000 years ago, and it's not going to change. We don't have to think about that or pray about it. We're going to make disciples. Um, we're going to glorify Jesus. That's what we're going to do forever and ever, right? And most churches in town would say they have that same mission statement. It's very close to that. Now, a vision statement is an appealing picture of the, the near future of how you're going to go about that mission statement, right? How you're going to go about accomplishing that. And that certainly can change and is different even from church to church. Like I said, lots of churches have the exact same mission statement or similar to ours, but they go about it in different ways. They have different emphasis, and that's good. That's also led by the Holy Spirit. So we're not going to be working out the particulars today of how the Holy Spirit is going to have us making disciples. That's the task of the next several months together as a church as we think and pray and talk together and listen to the Holy Spirit together. We believe he's going to give us that. But today is the big picture. Today is looking at, like, can we as a church again get a vision To be a community where every single member is a disciple maker. Where nobody's sitting on the sidelines. Nobody's in the game saying, I'm just going to watch the star player as they play. We're all going to be in the game. So, as we look at the words of Jesus to his disciples today, I want us to be asking one big question. Am I in the game or am I just watching? Am I a participant or am I a spectator? There's no question that's more important for you today. And as we go through this passage, here's my outline. I want you to look at three big things, three big things. First of all, notice the great claim of Jesus. Secondly, the great commission of Jesus. And then finally, the great comfort of Jesus. All of these super important for us to grasp our mission as disciples who make disciples. So first of all, the great claim. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me pretty powerful claim right you know lots of the commentators are saying nobody who is in their right mind who isn't god says this kind of thing all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me this is a powerful claim and the greek word for authority here is exousia it's often translated power so it means the absolute ability to do whatever one pleases and i think that helps us understand why jesus would make this incredible claim right before he gives his disciples the great commission right he's saying look I've been given all the power, all the authority in heaven and earth, and therefore, go and do this. Now, we have to ask, what's that power or authority that Jesus has? What is that for? And the scripture that's very, very similar to this, that has that exact same Greek word as John 17, too, where Jesus prays. And listen to what he prays. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority or power over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Okay, so the power that Jesus has, the authority that he has, is given to him by the Father to give eternal life to all who the Father has given him. That's what he has power and authority for. And that certainly makes sense in the context here, right? Like Jesus saying, I have all the power to give eternal life to anyone who comes to me. Right? I have all that authority. Therefore, you go and tell them about it. All right. It'd be kind of like if you were personal friends with somebody like Jeff Bezos, right? one of the wealthiest people in the world. And let's say Jeff had a wild hair to become a, an incredible philanthropist, and he's like, I'm going to give all my money away. And I want you to help me do that. So all you need to do is just go tell people that I am canceling debts. So our students, you would love this, no more student loans. right? Uh, I'm going to pay off houses. I'm going to pay off credit card debt. Car debt. Whatever you come to me with, I have the power. I have the authority to pay off all the debt. And of course, Jeff could get quite a ways with that, right? He could do us a lot of good. He could cancel all the debts in this room for sure. But, but, you know, um, he would eventually run out of that power, out of that authority, because eventually his money would run out and he wouldn't be able to, to do anymore. Well, Jesus is saying, I have all the authority, all the power, whoever comes to me, I can forgive them and give them eternal life. Now, How did Jesus get that authority bestowed upon him? Because he says here, there's a time where he was given this authority by the Father. Well, Paul helps us out in Ephesians. He says in Ephesians 1, verse 20, God raised him from the dead, Jesus, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So how was he given this power? Well, he was given this power when he was raised from the dead. Okay, so let's track with, here, with um, the words of Jesus here. This is the risen Lord Jesus saying to his disciples, because I have died and have risen again, I have all the power and all the authority to give eternal life to whoever comes to me. I've got this giant bank of eternal life. Whoever comes to me, I can give it to them. All you need to do is go out and tell people about it. All you need to do is go out and make disciples. Because you can bank on, I've got everything that they need. And isn't that an incredible vote of confidence? I got all the power, so there's nothing that can stop him. There's nothing that can limit him. All you need to do is go out and be obedient. So we don't ever go in our own authority and our own power. We go in the authority and in the power of the risen Lord Jesus. He's the one who's defeated death. He's the one that's received this authority and power from the Father. We're just the messengers that carry the good news. So that's the great claim that we see Jesus give here that prepares us to hear now this great commission. So he's made this claim. I've got all the power and the authority. Don't worry about that. Now here's what you're going to do. And he says this, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So making disciples is actually the main verb here in this passage. And so that's the main task. And the Greek lays this out in a way that suggests this isn't some add-on to all the other things that you're doing in your life. It's not like, okay, add one little to-do list on the end, which is making disciples. It's like, no, bend your whole life around this task of making disciples. As you're going, wherever you're going, be about making disciples like, this is who you are now, right? This is, as a, as, one, as a person filled with the Holy Spirit, as a follower of Christ, this is who you are. So you are going to be doing this wherever you go. All of your life is lived as a Christian. Now you're just simply sharing that life with others. As I mentioned, this is our mission at Life Church. We want to glorify Jesus Christ by making disciples in our neighborhood and beyond, you know, around the world. So that begs the question, if we're supposed to be doing this, what does a disciple look like? You know, what is it? If we're supposed to make disciples, then we should know what is a disciple? And thankfully, this passage tells us. A disciple is simply a follower, a learner, an apprentice of Jesus. And historically, the church has taught that a disciple has three main components to their lives. And there's different words the church has used over, over its history to talk about this. But at Life Church, we break it down into the bio. We talk about a disciple as someone who lives before God, in community, and on mission. That is the life of a Christian. Um, they, they live before God in love and obedience, in community, and on mission. And we find all three here in this passage. So let's start with before God. A disciple of Jesus lives before God in love and obedience to all that Jesus commands. So look at what Jesus says here. He says, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded them. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded them. And this is a really important part of what it means to be a disciple. It means you don't live for yourself anymore. You live for Jesus. It means that you are not your own anymore. You belong to Jesus. You're not the Lord of your life. You don't call the shots anymore. Jesus does. He has complete and utter authority in your life. And so what does it mean to have a Lord? You obey the Lord. Now, does that happen overnight in the life of a Christian? Yes or no? You can answer this? Yep. No. I wish it did, right? Don't you? Don't you sometimes just wish that you got it right away and you didn't have to struggle with sin and your own brokenness? But as we follow Jesus, we learn to obey. You know, we need to be taught this continually. Here at Life Church, we say this. You you believe in the Lord Jesus? That's the first step. Then you belong to the church, right? We baptize you with all your baggage coming in, all the all the stuff that you're still struggling against, and then you behave. Right? Believe, belong, behave. And in that order, right? That's how that's how we come into faith in the Lord Jesus. Obedience to Jesus is really important, but it takes a lifetime to learn what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, what are some of the ways that we learn to obey Jesus? Well, these are the Christian disciplines, right? We put these to work here at Life Church in so many different ways. Um, these are what helps us to live a life of obedience before God. Things like Bible study and prayer and fasting and silence and solitude. All these wonderful tools to help us to learn what it is that Jesus taught us and to help us to become the people internally that just want to obey, right? It's one thing to obey out of just sheer diligence, but it's another thing to say, ah, my heart's growing in its desire to obey. That's what we're really after, where the Holy Spirit's transforming us from the inside out. And as we go along here, remember the question we're asking ourselves today. Are you a participant or are you a spectator? Are you sitting on the sidelines or are you in the game? There's always two sides to this. As disciples, we're always learning and we're always teaching others. So I would ask you, how are you doing with this? Who is training you? to live before God in love and obedience? And who are you training to live before God in love and obedience? There should be a both-and there. You should be able to point to some people in your life on both ends of that spectrum. And a lot of times they can be the same people. So that's the first piece of what it means to be a disciple. That's the first part of the Great Commission. We want to make disciples who live before God um, in love and obedience. But secondly, a disciple is someone who lives in community. A disciple is a person from the very beginning of the church. Christians never practiced faith all by themselves, but we're always practicing it in the context of a loving community called the church. You might say, well, where is that in this passage, Pastor Dave? I don't see that uh, in what Jesus says here. Well, it's right there where Jesus commands us to baptize disciples in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Right? Baptism is not a personal experience. I always have a problem when I hear, you know, so-and-so came to faith and then one person just took them and quickly baptized them in the tub. I'm like, ah, you just missed an opportunity, right? Because they're baptized into a community, into a church that says, we will love you, we will pray for you, we will encourage you, we will discipline and support you right? All these wonderful things. Jesus says, I've put my whole body of the church around you to help you, to nourish you, to strengthen you, to use your gifts as you go about trying to follow me. So there's a lot going on when you're baptized, but it's not just a personal thing. It's a communal thing. Um, I'll never forget, Christina, when you taught about naked baptism in the early church. Uh, this is at our old building, and I think all the eyes were just wide open, Um, And, you know, it was hard to imagine. Now, of course, this was in the early church, guys with guys, gals with gals, nothing scandalous going on here. But there was this practice of naked baptism in the early church. Um, And this was an extreme statement of belonging to one another. And you might say, well, why would they ever practice naked baptism? Well, if you think about it, um, in the early church, there were times of severe, severe persecution where Christians were stripped naked and thrown to wild beasts, where they were stripped naked and crucified or stripped naked and burned alive. And so in the early church, they were saying, look, there's a good chance on the last day we will see each other like this. And so you really want to be a part of this community because once you were baptized you were part of the church and you were a good candidate to be martyred immediately once you were baptized it meant you had membership in this community you were part of the way you were a christian and you could be killed for your faith so naked baptism was a powerful statement of belonging to a community and though i appreciate we no longer practice naked baptism here at life church i do really appreciate The communal event that baptism is, in our baptism creed, we ask questions both of the person being baptized, you understand, and of the church body as a whole, right? These are the questions we ask of the church body. So after the person has come up out of the water, we've all clapped and had our great moment and pictures are taken. I say to you, do you as the body of Christ commit to praying for these being baptized and surrounding them with support, encouragement, and loving correction? It's an important piece. And then we say, Do you accept the charge to teach them to obey everything Jesus commanded them, making them true disciples of Jesus? And we don't take these commandments or these commitments lightly at life church. We want to make disciples who understand the importance of community, who really invest in Christ's body of the church, as imperfect as she is. I know there's tons of problems with the church. I work in it, I am part of the problem of the church. There's no reason to give up on it. Jesus gave his life for the church. And so we keep trying to make her more like Jesus wants her to be when he returns. So I'll ask you again, how are you doing being trained to live in community? And how are you doing training other believers to live in community? Not to go off and isolate yourself, but to live really in community with other people. That's the second thing a disciple is. So we want to make disciples who live before God and who are in community. And then finally, we want to make disciples who are on mission. A disciple of Jesus is one who lives on a specific mission. And Catherine was a great example of that today in the TMT. This mission, of course, is the crux of this text. Go, make disciples. Notice, Jesus does not make any qualifiers here. No qualifying statements. He doesn't say, you know, if you've had three years of professional theological education, then you are called to make disciples. He doesn't say if you're a man, you're called to make disciples. If you're a woman, you're called to make disciples. If you haven't had this particular sin struggle, then you're called to make disciples. No, anyone who confesses the name of, that that confesses Jesus as Lord is called to this task of making disciples. Jesus is speaking to this large crowd around him, and he gives them this command that most definitely extends to us and has been the mission of the church for 2,000 years. To be a Christian is to be a person on mission, period. No more discussion about it. Again, back to my opening illustration, I think there are a lot of Christians today who really haven't seen themselves as a part of that effort. We're sitting on the sidelines thinking other people are going to get around to that. Other people are going to do the task of making disciples. That's not for me. And the truth of it is all of us who confess Jesus, Lord, receive this great commission. So again, where are you at with this? Who's training you to live on mission? Who are you training to live on mission with Jesus? So there it is. We've seen the great claim of Jesus and the great commission of Jesus. But finally, there's a great comfort here. That Jesus gives in closing this passage. He says, I am with you always. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Um, have you ever taken on a task that would have been really intimidating by yourself, um, but because you had a very qualified and capable partner or friend, it was actually kind of enjoyable? Uh, this, uh, two years ago, I put a deck on my house. Um, we put a deck on my house, and by we, I mean mostly my friend Jeremy. And then I helped a little bit. Um, and it was a, a daunting project because you know how projects are. Every time you get into a project, it creates three more projects. Like we tore siding off and, okay, this, this, this board is rotten. And what do we do here? And I would have been just like, oh, no, this is awful. I think we should just bulldoze the house. You know, what do we do? Uh, and Jeremy's like, no, this is how we'll handle it. We'll get this done. And, and like, after a lot of work and, and us just enjoying time together, Uh, You can drive a car onto my deck. That's how Jeremy builds stuff. And that's just because of Jeremy. I don't know if I would sit on the deck if I had built it, right? So this daunting task goes to very doable, very enjoyable, because I was working with my good buddy Jeremy. Well, that's the way the Christian ought to feel. I mean, remember back to the first point, the great claim? This isn't just anybody who's saying, yeah, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the risen Lord Jesus who's saying that. He's saying, I'll be with you. I know I'm giving you a huge, massive, impossible task, but I'll be with you even to the end of the age. He's the one who's defeated death. He's the one who has the power to offer eternal life to everyone who comes to him. So this is an incredible, comforting promise. Like we talked about last week, he's given us the power of the Holy Spirit to be with us in all these things that we have to undertake. Now, as we close our time together, Maybe you're here today and you're not a disciple yet. Wow, thank you for coming to church. I don't know how you got here, but it is awesome to have you here. Our vision, our hope for you would be that you would receive the offer that Jesus holds out to you today. He has the power to offer you eternal life because he died and rose again to have that power and that authority. He can give it to you. There's going to be people up here to pray with you. We would love to introduce you to the life of following Jesus as a disciple. And we promise we're not going to leave you in that. We're going to stick with you every step of the way. It's going to have some bumps. It's going to be rough sometimes. But we will walk with you through that as a church community. For the rest of us, I'm wondering where are we at with this vision to make disciples as a church? You know, we've gone through a lot of stuff as a church these past several years. And for a while there, it felt like, especially through COVID, every church's vision changed to, let's just survive. Like, let's just try to keep the lights on. Let's just try not to lose a bunch of people, right? And if we're not careful, that can very quickly take over the place of what Jesus actually told us to do and be about, right? You can just get this focus on survival and and how do we keep members and how do we keep people happy and not fighting with each other. And really, then we're missing the whole point of what Jesus told us to do. This is what he told us to do, friends. I'm wondering, can we get that back at the center of our focus? That making disciples, being really diligent about that, can be the central focus of life church. Again, this vision is so big, so massive. We could never do it on our own strength. We must have the Holy Spirit, but it'll also take all of us as well. There won't be any time, any room for anyone to be a spectator. If you're a Christian, and especially if you're a member of Life Church, I'd love to have you take the next step today. You know, we always have um going out in the weekly email an application challenge. And today, um, as the worship team comes back up, we're just gonna have those. Do we have those little sheets of paper to run around, charity? Okay, okay. Eric's gonna pass around some sheets of paper. This is your application challenge. And I'd like for you to take some time just to reflect with the Holy Spirit, with the Lord right now um, on our big question. Are you in the game or are you watching? Are you a spectator or are you a participant? And um, I'd like you to think of three people and just jot down their names. This is just for you. This is between you and the Lord. I would encourage you to share it with a friend, um, with a family member, But three people who are really involved in discipling you, who are pouring into your life. You're growing as a disciple because of these people. And then three people who you're involved in discipling. And if you can't think of anybody, there's no shame or guilt here today. This is just a time for us to take inventory. And if you can't think of anybody, or if you can only think of like maybe one or two, please come and talk to us as staff or elders We would love to get you plugged in with a group. We'd love to get you plugged in with some people, some opportunities to both be discipled and to make disciples. Brothers and sisters, the church is not an audience of spectators. It is a fellowship of disciple makers. May that be true of us today. Let's pray. Our Father, I just pray that you would move in our hearts again to receive this great commission. We thank you, Jesus, that you have done everything that we could never do, that you've made this possible for us to have eternal life in you and to offer salvation to the world. We ask you now to help us to just be obedient with our small part. Thank you for calling us to be on your team. We love you and we trust you today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.